One common thread, though, that I really want to point out is what you said about legitimacy being so important. Regardless of who your seller is, when they're an older demographic especially, they're so constantly scammed. Welcome to the Big Picture Blueprint. I'm your host, Dan Hebercost, along with Mason McDonald. And we're going to discuss all things land, real estate, and business in general with all kinds of exceptional people. Let's get started. Hey guys, Dan Habercost and Mason McDonald here today talking a bit about marketing and negotiating, but more specifically, how to align both your marketing and negotiation strategies with your specific avatar to get the best result possible. Uh, I think this is essential for any business, but uh, Mason, how you doing today? Dan, I'm doing wonderful. Excited to be talking about this with you today. Likewise, likewise. We thought we would start off by actually defining each because I think people get this wrong. You know, at the the top of your funnel is is your marketing wheel. And all that you're doing with your marketing is working to get the attention of your specific avatar. And that's when the negotiation begins, if you want to hit on that, Mason. Yeah, I think you know what what Dan's saying and the most important thing about this business and kind of any business in general is you need to individualize your approach uh, based on the audience that you're attempting to market to. And that's every aspect of the business from how you handle the coordination of the transaction to the language you're using whenever you're speaking to them to the you know original marketing material that you're um, sending out in whatever capacity that you're sending it out in. I, I think what's unique about this business and you know further defining marketing is we're marketing to people for a product that we want to buy from them, which is different than a lot of marketing strategies that are out there and what you're going to typically associate with marketing where most people are trying to sell something. We're trying to buy something. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And it definitely is uh, a differentiator from other businesses. And getting into negotiating, I think the main point I wanted to make there, I mean, these are seemingly very simple terms, but negotiation should only start once you're actually speaking with your avatar, your seller, your client, and and people get this wrong all the time, they try and negotiate with somebody who is not their customer. And so in the context of our business where we're buying land at a discount, this is when people spend hours banging their head against the wall trying to negotiate with someone they should just go sell on the market. You're you're absolutely right. And and I think where people you know, will fail and we'll get into all the tactics and techniques today, but where people fail is whenever they think they are going to try and have someone fit into a box that they just don't fit into. You know, it's the, the concept of a job interview where you're interviewing the company that you're trying to work for as well as them interviewing you. Everything is a two-way street in business. And as soon as you can recognize that, hey, this person is not going to fit you know, my avatar or they're not going to be the type of person I want to work with, save your time, move on, help them and recommend them to the appropriate, uh, you know, person to help them out rather than you trying to help them in their situation. Cause it's just not going to work. You're going to bang your head against the desk, just like Dan said. Exactly. Yeah. I've heard this question so many times. What do I do if they want market price? Send them a realtor and move on. They're not your seller. They're right on them. Yep. Yep. So, all right, we've defined each, let's get into it. So Mason, how do you go about figuring out who your seller is first and foremost? Yeah. So 
backing up to just give the whole holistic picture, you know, Dan and I buy land for, you know, at a discount and we sell it on market uh, for more. So the whole business here is attempting to purchase land at an extreme discount in order for us to have our own margins in the business. So for me, depending on the type of land that I'm targeting, that's how I build my marketing profile. And since I work primarily in Colorado and Arizona right now, and I work primarily in rural markets, my demographic is usually not going to be a corporation. It's going to be an individual that has owned their land for a long period of time, which typically means they're going to be an older audience. And so with an older audience, you have to you know, work with marketing material that they're going to be most familiar with. And all those different strategies that you hear about texting and cold calling and you know, direct voicemail and everything, it doesn't quite work as well with my particular avatar and my demographic. So I send mail, you know, I send either uh, blind offer purchase agreements in the mail, or for the most part, I send postcards uh, and I'm targeting people that, you know, probably would be happy to get rid of their land quickly at a discount because they might be a little bit more distressed. So, you know, in defining the avatar for this rural land that I'm buying, it's a potentially distressed seller that is just wanting to get rid of their land out of convenience because they're, you know, getting older and they don't want to have to have their family, um, you know, deal with the land if they pass away. And, you know, building the marketing around that, the biggest thing that you want to think about of, okay, you're, you're doing direct to seller marketing. Everyone gets so much mail. So how do you stand out? How do you individualize your approach? And most importantly, how do you come across as not being a scammer? So Dan, I think you make a lot of great points on stuff that you do in your business to make yourself seem a lot more legit. Uh, what, what are some of those, you know, what's some of the verbiage that you use in your marketing material that makes yourself come across as more legit? Yeah. So to this whole point about identifying the avatar, I also am primarily getting deals via mail and cold calling, but more mail than anything. And it does tend to be that older person that bought land decades ago. And land is almost always bought for cash. And so if they were buying for cash decades ago, they tend to be in a strong financial position. So the avatar I deal with is rarely distressed. They want legitimacy, as Mason just hit on. And so we establish that in a couple ways. Number one, right on our postcards, we put tired of fake offers. We send proof of funds. That has been really powerful because... They are so sick of people calling, texting, mailing them who don't have money, who don't know about the land, who don't know what they're doing and are just wasting their time hoping to assign the contract. And those people give us deals all the time. My guys, when they hear a seller say, oh, I got a higher offer at X, will immediately go, oh, well, did they send proof of funds? Uh, no, they didn't. Oh, well, Mr. Seller, a lot of our competition doesn't have money. And they're just trying to sell that contract to someone else, which they may or may not do. We'll close every time quickly. So let us know if you'd like a real offer. We are that direct with them. I have my guys say, say that. And number two, we have a nice website, a frequently asked question sheet for every market. Here's our title company or attorney, depending on the state, whether it's North Carolina, it's attorney state, Florida's title company state, title state, and just solid systems and processes. And one more thing, and then I'll, I'll pause Mason, but so often, people who go into the land space don't actually know the, the basics of land. They don't know what builders are looking for. They don't know what surveys or plat maps or 
you know, perk tests are. And that just makes you sound clueless when you can't actually speak about the asset you're trying to buy. And so I have really trained my guys to understand the asset they're going after, what the end user is going to be looking for, and what sort of terms are going to be coming up in normal conversation, both on the buy and sell side. Yeah, I think, you know, and once again, and, you know, the goal of this is to talk about marketing and negotiating, you know, within the land space, but the application of this is across every single business. And what Dan's really hitting on there is you have to utilize the jargon associated with the product that you are buying or selling to make yourself seem more legit there. And for me, working with a more distressed seller that has maybe bought, you know, one piece of land and one house or two homes in their entire life, if I start u- utilizing a lot of that terminology, what happens is people get defensive. And they start shutting down because they start saying, you know, I I don't really know what any of this means. Like, I don't know how to do this and anything like that. And so what the the words I focus on is, hey, my goal is to make this the easiest business transaction that you have ever done in your entire life. I'm going to handle everything. Everything that I do is fully insured through a title company. Uh, We're going to send you mail. And we're going to either send a notary directly to you or have you go to your own notary at the bank or the post office. And all you have to do is sign these four documents with the notary present and you're going to get your cash. And being able to focus on and kind of utilize language that's at that third grade level. You know, there's a lot of research on you need to be writing at a second to third grade level to appeal to a majority of the people in the United States. And if I go in saying, hey, can you talk to me about the legal or deeded access to your property and whether or not you have had a recent perk test? And um, a lot of the the terms that Dan just threw out there, if you're not familiar with land, you probably don't know what he's talking about either. And most of the people that I'm buying from, you know, rural, you know, that bought rural land back in the 70s out in Colorado, uh, they don't know what what we're talking about either. So beyond focusing on the the marketing language associated with it, you have to use the appropriate language based on the people that you're talking to. Because, yes. um, you know, same same for for me with some of the more uh, sophisticated sellers that I work with, where you can tell pretty quickly if if you're going to be working with a sophisticated or an unsophisticated seller. So, you know, if I'm buying a commercial, you know, piece of commercial land from a developer that just got old and tired. We're going to be using an entirely different language and different approach than we would utilize for the unsophisticated. Yeah, Mason, you hit, you, you're driving home a good point here, which is that my avatar and yours tend to be very different because I'm focusing on infill lots pretty close to major metros, sometimes in the middle of major metros. I mean, we're looking at a piece in downtown Albuquerque right now, and so I tend to deal with a more sophisticated seller and it tends to be somebody that maybe they developed for years and years and now they're retiring. They have a couple lots left or they're investors or, you know, may- maybe they're a mom and pop, but they tend to know their product. Whereas you, you know, uh, Colorado and Arizona rural land tends to be more the very unsophisticated person that bought, you know, the Colorado or Arizona dream years ago from out of state and they don't know. And so the way that we approach our sellers are, are, are different. One common thread, though, that I really want to point out is what you said about legitimacy being so important. Regardless of who your seller is, when they're an older demographic, especially, they're so constantly uh, 
scammed. People try and scam the older generation right on. more than anything else. Yeah. And so on my end, you know, the, the frequently asked question sheet, the, oh, hey, Mason, here's our title company. Here, do you remember when you bought your house? Uh, you didn't just hand the seller a bag of cash. You gave it to the title company, right? Oh, oh, yeah. So uh, building legitimacy is at the top of the list for both of our sellers. Uh, however, some of the other pain points are a little bit different, being that mine's a little more sophisticated and his is a little less so. Exactly. And and you have to look back and you can establish that really quickly right at the beginning. You know, one, one of the first things that you're going to do whenever you get someone actually on the phone is start establishing rapport. And one of the ways where you can establish rapport as well as determine the level of sophistication of the person you're working with is ask them what their initial intention was with the land that they purchased, where, you know, for, you know, to compare for myself of, you know, the, the commercial property that was going to be nine town home units and the developer got old, I can understand, okay, this is a, this is an investor that I'm talking to. They're going to understand what's going on. The person that came out here in the seventies or eighties and bought, you know, five acres to put their cabin on is something I hear a ton. They're not going to be as sophisticated. And what Dan's saying there is, you know, with purchasing uh, infill lots and kind of, you know, more suburbia outside of major metro districts, most vacationers or recreational buyers are not going to have purchased that land ever. It's going to be people that bought that as an investment tool or an investment vehicle, knowing that either A, it's going to appreciate in value over the years, or B, they're going to develop it themselves, primarily not for themselves though. Uh, they're going to build on it and then they're going to sell it themselves or something like that. So you're able to really establish that rapport right at the beginning because people love talking about themselves and you should not be doing a majority of the talking whenever you're negotiating with a seller and just finding out the history. People love talking about it. And if they don't, then that gives you another tool of, hey, they have some weird association with this property that probably will be able to get it at an even greater discount than expected. Yeah, there's okay. There's two things I really want to hit on from that. Uh, number one, how much people like talking about themselves, and how how much building rapport lets you have a more honest conversation. And what I mean is, you know, there's always kind of a wall up initially, especially over the phone, especially for baby boomers who are you know worried about getting scammed. And effectively, building rapport is the the best way, metaphorically, to as opposed to two people across the table negotiating move yourself around where you're both sitting on the same side of the table, looking at the project together, talking through it collaboratively. And a great example of this is one of my uh, acquisition guys who he's my best by far. He's excellent at this. He has 20 to 30 minute phone conversations on average with real sellers. And yesterday there was a seller who had a p commercial piece of land right by the San Diego Bay and he bought it for $400,000 and he got screwed. It's not worth even close to that. It's worth maybe a hundred, but it's awkward. It's small. He offered, my guy offered 35 and he did such a good job of building rapport that it went over great because the guy liked him. He trusted him and that would not have happened if he did not first establish that relationship. It is, it is powerful if you build rapport right. The whole dynamic of the conversation changes and you can say and ask things you otherwise would not be able to. You're right on. And I mean, let, let's dive right into kind of negotiating techniques. So we, we've walked through of, you know, from the standpoint of establishing your avatar based on, you know, what type of deals you're targeting and 
uh, building your marketing plan and marketing materials around it. So we both use a lot of direct mail. We'll use specific um, and intentional language depending on the area we're marketing, um, whether it's for the you know more sophisticated, wealthier, kind of apathetic investor or the more distressed seller trying to get rid of their unused land quickly. Um, and once we get them on the phone, first thing that we said, we're building rapport. We're getting to know them. We're getting to know the use of their land or intended use of their land from whenever they purchased it. And that gives us even a greater idea of the avatar we're actually talking to. Because regardless of what your marketing material is behind, you're going to get both people in because we're sending out such large marketing campaigns. But whenever we actually get them on the phone and we start building rapport, we start understanding what's going on. And just like we said, kind of at the beginning of the episode, it's a two-way street in a negotiation or a business transaction. So if it doesn't match up, it's fine. But if you know that you don't need that deal, you're going to feel a lot more comfortable throwing out numbers that would probably make you sick, where you know that piece of land is worth $100,000. You don't want to go too low, but the fact that your acquisition manager was comfortable enough to throw out a $35,000 number where you look at the margin of that deal of you're going to probably two and a half X your money on it after all associated costs and selling it at a discount. Mm-hmm. That's only possible when you know you don't need to do the deal because as soon as you need something, you know, it, depending on us that are pretty great at negotiating, when I hear that need from someone, I'm like a shark in the water that smells blood yeah. because then I know, okay, well, I know I could probably get that piece of land for 15 grand or on the opposite side of it is, man, it sounds like this person really, really, really wants to buy my land. I'm going to gouge them. And that right there is something that's so crucial for you guys to remember is don't make any emotional decisions in business because all this is for us as business owners, it's just numbers. And you have a number in mind and you want to start lower than that number. You know, it's similar techniques that you'll see, you know, it's called anchoring of you want to set a lower dollar value and then you work together to come up with a solution. And that idea of, hey, I'm going to walk away at any point as soon as this gets out of the hand or anything like that. I can tell you now, Dan, we've thrown out numbers where, you know, say say it's a piece of land that's worth 20 grand and we threw out six you know, 6,500 or something like that, something ridiculously low, insultingly low. And they say, we can't make that work. And we say, okay, well, you know, if you have other offers or you decide you want to work with a realtor, awesome, great for you. You know, let us know if you need any help or any connections. Um, but if you decide you don't want to deal with the headache of it, you don't want to deal with the pain of all, all the associated, you know, drama with listing and getting offers and everything like that, just know you've got a fair, reasonable offer that we can close in two weeks. And we'll be here. Let us know. And I can't tell you how many times they say, you know, screw off. And then I get a signed purchase agreement in the mail two days later because they decided, oh, wow, this actually works. Yeah. Yeah. So there's two points I want to make. That 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 concept is incredibly important. You have to approach all of these conversations from the perspective of I don't need it. And just like Mason said, I can't tell you how many times we've made an offer and then they say no. We say, okay, no worries, and they come back. And then you did a good job here transitioning to my last point. I had said there's two things I wanted to say. I didn't say the second. And the second point was people all too often approach negotiations assuming the other person 
sees the world exactly how they do. And, and what I mean is your perspective is not necessarily their perspective in that money may not be high on their priority list. We run into this all the time. Perfect example. We got two accepted, an offer accepted on two lots. And in the email where he accepted the offer, he stated, yeah, as much as it would be nice to get market price, I'm at a point in my life where convenience is more important because money was not at the top of his priority list. So, you know, that's another thing to keep in mind when you're negotiating wealth and really in every aspect of life is stop assuming that your perspective is that of the other person, that your priorities are the same as the other person's. 100%. I mean, most people never leave their hometown. Uh, they've never traveled the world. They've never seen anything beyond what they've seen in their own personal life. And for you to assume that they have a similar perspective on life and their finances and this property that really? you would expect them to have, you're going to lose. It's the idea of, you know, replace expectation with the word assumption of you're going to make certain assumptions going into it, but allow yourself to have your mind changed where, you know, uh, getting into kind of a specific example where we had uh, two pieces of land we were in negotiation with the seller. Uh, he'd owned the land for quite a while. He was going to build a vacation dream home beautiful neighborhood, beautiful community, you know, fishing lake in it, multi-million dollar homes. And uh, we offered him, I think, about 49000 per lot. So it was two contiguous lots. And he said, you know, I paid right around twenty for him. You know, there's not been a lot of action or development in the area. I think you offered too high. And the point I'm making is a huge one from a negotiation yep. tactic. As I said, what do you think is fair? And I shut up. And yep. there was probably 60 to 70 seconds of pure silence, which yep. for most people, if you're not someone like myself or Dan who uh, lack shame um, <laughs> or uh, feel very uh, comfortable being in uncomfortable situations, uh, you're going to start talking and say, well, like, you know, well, what do you think? What do you think? Uh, you know, maybe, maybe 37, maybe 35. And you just have to be quiet. And he responded yes. with, well... I think 20000 a lot would be fair, especially since you're paying all the closing costs, which is another huge point in negotiation tactic that we have is we just focus and focus on how much money we're saving them on little things like paying all the closing costs and no realtor commissions and everything like that. And that property right there that we paid 20000 for, um, we sold one of them for 81000 I have the other one sitting on the market at 100000 because you know, do the math on that. I made 25,000 after commissions, um, after purchasing both lots and I have one owned free and clear entirely. And the reason that I was able to make so much money on that one deal. And the reason that I feel comfortable having another one sit on the market at a higher dollar amount is because I was silent in the negotiation. Because if I had paid almost a hundred grand for both of them, I'd be feeling a lot lot less comfortable uh, leaving one of those properties on the market. But man, silence is just crucial in this business. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. There's two things I really wanted to drive home. And again, and I'm going to hold you to saying two things here and not one. All right. No, I have hey, been on top of it. Number one, it never hurts to ask and always let them speak first. So that's a great example. I had an example, but yours is better. So I'll leave it at that. But, you know, I, I have a newer acquisition manager who I have been really, really trying to drive this home. Make the offer, confidently state your value proposition, and then shut up. And as a corollary to that, number two is it never hurts to ask. So assuming you've built your rapport, assuming you're communicating effectively with this person, 
you can get down to the wire and go, well, gosh, Mason, we're close here, but can you do any better? And I'll tell you a story. This, this got driven home in my head years ago. One of the first rentals I bought, I was negotiating with her. We were down to 210 in Colorado Springs. So buying something at 210 is laughable now. And I thought, well, I'd buy it this, but never hurts to ask. And so I said, can you do any better? And she goes, ah, okay, I'll do 200. And in that moment, I realized with 60 seconds of effort and asking a simple question and then shutting up, I made $10,000 and that has stuck with me ever since. It's amazing. And, and, you know, it, it kind of ties into something called the Franklin effect where Benjamin Franklin was a master negotiator. And one of the things that he really did that, uh, solidified him as getting what he, or, you know, his ability to get what he wanted is asking people for favors. We want to help other humans. Most of yep. us are not so selfish that we're wanting to, you know, screw people over or anything like that. And right there, Dan, you asked her for a favor. And she, in her karma bank, is like, you know what? I can help this sweet young man out and I can I can give him a little discount because at the end of the day, it doesn't make a, you know, too much sense for me. Because like, like we said, stop making, you know, these ideas of expectations of what these people want or what these people need in your mind and shut up and let them tell you. Because... Yes. You know, same thing with other stuff of where, I mean, we, Dan and I could probably talk for two hours about uh, example after example after example of these deals where I've had people say, you know what, I need to take a loss this year because yep. I made, you know, over, over the next tax bracket and I'd love to take a loss to reduce my taxes. So any money that I lost on this property that I bought 20 years ago is going to, you know, change the way my taxes work this year and you're helping me out. And so you can utilize that language whenever you have that more sophisticated avatar where you can say, hey, do you need to take a loss this year? You know, people were making more money in the pandemic than ever. You know, we're, we're in a quasi-recession or whatever you want to call what what the market is, um, you know, the, the larger macroeconomic market right now. But you don't know what their case is. And so you can throw out that language if it makes sense to you. Yep. But man, I, I can't say it enough shut up and let them tell you what's going on with their situation and just listen and pick out the pain points because that's what we're doing here is we're just solving people's problems whether it's the sophisticated investor that needs to take a loss on their taxes and you know they're tired of paying property taxes on their unused land or whatever it is you're solving that problem by getting it off the books or maybe it's the old person that uh you know is is um you know, recognizing that death is coming soon. None of their kids want the land. They don't want to deal with a realtor. They don't care about the cash for it. They just want to get rid of it quickly, conveniently. And because you talk to them about their kids and grandkids and great grandkids, they're they're going to sell to you. Or it's the person that needs money quick. And you have to me, you know, I'm I try to be as ethical as I possibly can in business. And I say, hey, you know, we can do these numbers. This is what works for us. Um, I'm not trying to screw you over or anything like that, but to me, it's a numbers game. These are the numbers that work for myself and the business. If you want to get top dollar, go to a realtor and I can refer you to a realtor. But I, what I will tell you is you're going to open up a lot more, you know, time in the transaction where it's, if you need money now, you know, this is what I can get you within the next two weeks. So it's just never make assumptions about what you expect these people to do and just shut up and listen to them. Yeah, you hit on a good point there about confidently stating your value proposition. So 
again, there's there's no ambiguity as to what we do when we talk to people. I have my guys very directly say, hey, Mason, you know, we're investors, we're cash buyers, you know, we'll close quickly, we'll close every time. But if you're looking for apps, top, absolutely top dollar, here's our realtor, he's great, feel free to go to him. And this is really intentional because if they are our avatar, the word realtor and selling on the market is a buzzword, they don't want to do it. They don't want to do it. And so saying that often effectively, you know, brings the, gets the ball uh, or shifts the power dynamic. That's what I'm trying to say, where then they're coming back to us. No, 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 no. I don't want to sell with the realtor. What do you guys do? It's, it's a form of the takeaway. And this is what I have my guys do when there is any, let's say they're a little bit aggressive, the seller, they call or they are asking for above market value. I'll go, oh, well, Mr. Seller, I mean, again, we're we're cash buyers, we're investors, we're going to be quite a bit lower, happy to send you a realtor that we've used, that we trust, that's effective, uh, but it sounds like we're not your buyer. And then shut up. And oftentimes, they go, oh, well, uh, okay, no, what, come on, what can you pay? And so they, number one, shifted the power dynamic, and number two, uh, gave you permission to make that low offer. And so it always goes over much, much, much easier doing that. And so the takeaway, as I call it, is a really effective way to negotiate, shift the power dynamic, and get permission to make a low offer. I love it. And and Dan Dan taught me that tactic right there where, you know, at the beginning of this business, um, you know, for, for the, those of you guys that are flipping land and the people that are learning about flipping land, where a majority of the marketing that you know, myself and Dan and most people send out are, are some form of direct mail. And I used to send out a lot of blind offers, you know, saying, hey, I want to purchase your land at 123 Main Street for X number of dollars. And, you know, so many times I would way over offer, you know, offer 40,000 on a piece of land that on the market is worth 25. And, you know, Dan taught me, hey, like whenever that happens, say, hey, we made a, made a mistake, you know, eat, eat crow. Um, we made a mistake on our offer. We way over offered, you know, whatever the reason is of, you know, hey, we, you know, there's an error in the data or we thought it was worth more, but it's worth way less and whatever it is, doesn't matter. And what Dan says there of asking that, you know, letting the seller give you permission to make a low ball offer where what you say is, hey, you know, maybe you should go with a realtor if you want to get anywhere close to that. Uh, we made a mistake. I don't want to even insult you with the offer that I could give you for the numbers that make sense in my business. And then once again, just shut up. And whenever they say, no, I mean, you know, tell, tell me how far off you were. And whenever you throw out, you know, I can do nine point, you know, 9,500. Like that, that's it, man. You know, I, I wouldn't even listen to it if I were, I were you. And or whatever, whatever you want to say, depending on the rapport that you've built with him. And it goes over so well because what you did is you displayed humility by saying, Hey, I made a mistake. You know, it's like, I made a mistake. I screwed up. You know, I, I misvalued your land. That's probably why you called me is because you saw that offer and you thought you were about to take home a huge payday. And man, I, I think just being humble in this business can make you a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Yep. No, uh, agreed. A hundred percent, hundred percent. That is a really effective method. Uh, for making low offers. And a couple more uh, thoughts uh, that are kind of a corollary there. 
number one, how, how do you tell them without telling them? And so that's kind of a way of doing it. But, you know, oftentimes we'll deal with somebody who clearly wants to sell. I know they're our avatar. We've told them, there's one we're dealing with like this right now where we've even said, hey, here is our realtor, Dan, also named Dan in Florida. Go sell with him. Don't hold on to these. Because when I look at this lady, she should sell them. Her kids don't need it. She's older. She could use the money. We have told her that repeatedly. And so sometimes you have to communicate something delicately to them that you can't say overtly. And so the easiest example would be like with her or many of these sellers, hey, you know, Mrs. Seller, you're 85. You bought this 20 years ago. You're going to pass away. You're never going to use it. You're not going to be able to use the cash. And then your kids are going to have to probate it and then sell it at a discount. But I can't say that. We can't say that. So my favorite question in the context of the buildable infill lots that we have is, oh, so you do think you're going to move and, and, and build on the land. And then you just wait. And that's the way of telling them without telling them, oh, no, I'm going to die with this. My kids don't want it. They're going to have to pay for probate. It's going to be a huge pain in the butt, right? So questions, effectively asking questions is a great way to communicate things that you can't say overtly like that. And so that's another method I like to use. Oh, yeah. Well, and I, I mean, it, I, I love how it you know becomes circular there, where if you start the conversation off to build the rapport of what was the initial intended use of the land? And then going back and hitting on that of, okay, well, what, what are you going to use the land for now? And I think, you know, just having them like really sit back and think of like, what am I using this land for? And, you know, I, I, I want to kind of leave everyone with, um, you know, like a direct strategy that can be so effective that's worked really well in my business, walking through the whole pipeline of, of what we're talking about doing here, where you know, if we, if we have time for this, Dan, I, I think it'd be really useful for everyone to, you know, kind of hear, hear it in action, have a real takeaway of a applicable marketing strategy, which is, you know, say, say in your state, you know, you know, that property tax bills are coming in March. Yep. So you want to send a direct mail marketing campaign targeting whatever subdivision or county or zip code or city or whatever it is. And you want to remind them that they have vacant land that they are not using and they have not used in years. And you want to say, hey, can I solve your problem? Are you tired of paying property taxes on your unused vacant land? You know, give us a call for a fair offer or something like that. And if you send that marketing campaign two weeks or three weeks before they're going to get that bill from the county treasurer's office, they see it and they say, ah, screw this guy. Like, I don't want to deal with this. And then they see the tax assessors or the, uh, the county treasurer's bill that comes in for their property taxes, and they're like, oh, crap, um, I have to pay this. And if you follow up with another letter, maybe even a blind offer, um, at the assessed values website, or like at the assessed value of the land, which is all public information, um, and typically is way discounted compared to market prices, depending on the state that you're in, and you send a blind offer right that, there, you got three pieces of marketing material, of which you only paid for two of them, and you prime them for it right there. And so you you successfully created this beautiful marketing campaign that you're solving their problems because you can pay their property taxes for you or you know for them for the year. And I, I think being able to effectively see what's going on, you know, at the the macro level to, you know, target your marketing material effectively based on the avatar that you went in and see what free marketing there's gonna be out there and then 
you know, targeting them one more time, I mean, that right there is going to get you so many deals and it doesn't even matter what your asset class is. Um, if you can utilize what's going on in the media or what's going on in their personal life or their professional life to give them a solution to their problem and it's going to make you so much money in the long run. Yeah, that is a, a great, great tip there because I know that worked really well for you. Um, one more point I want to make, I don't, I don't know if you have more to hit on Mason, but be careful about coming up in price. We've shot ourselves in the foot here doing this inadvertently a few times where we just got greedy and started too low, where if you're the seller and you're talking to a buyer and let's say it's a $40,000 lot and they start at 10 and then, okay, well you do 15 or okay, 18. You're thinking this guy's full of crap. He's just trying to get what he can and it just doesn't go over well. Your offer needs to be legitimately what you can and are comfortable paying. And if you ever increase it, there needs to be a legitimate justification. And so, you know, perfect example. There was one recently we started at, I, I want to say 20 and we didn't intend to come up. We thought it was worth 40 ish, but our realtor drove by. He goes, you know what? They've already cleared this lot. All the trees are down. It's perfectly flat. It's a little bit oversized. We could get another 10 grand. And so we could come up a little bit. And we, we called them back and said, we can come up because, and then explain that, because if you don't have a legitimate justification for price increases, they're going to think you're full of crap and you're just trying to jerk them around. And so I found that to be really important. And I tell my guys, if you ever come up in price, there needs to be a reason. Exactly. Where, you know, it it's a numbers game. And the thing is, to us in the business that are attempting to create both a returns business as well, well as a volume business, we have that number in mind. And it's, you know, kind of the way I look at it is I can have a lower cash on cash return and can do higher on a property that I know is going to sell very rapidly, where the properties that we know are going to sell a little bit slower, my returns are way higher. Where, I mean, Dan, Dan and I have a deal that's been sitting on the market, you know, together for, for way too long at this point in time, but the cash on cash return, I mean, it's, it's a four X of our money essentially, or a three, three and a half to four X of our money. And so that right there, whenever you see those returns, it's like, okay, I'm more comfortable because even if it takes six, seven months to sell, you know, one of those deals is worth 10 smaller deals type of thing. Um, yeah, but I think, you know, in a negotiation, it's just bless man time is the most valuable resource we have where there's going to be depending on how you structure your negotiation or your marketing material you know if it's you that made the offer first you have your offer they can counter and you can counter the counter and that's to me the max number of negotiation that you can do you know three numbers is the absolute max i don't know if you feel the same way dan but it's if you're going back and forth all day, one, it reduces your legitimacy as a professional in the industry of, you know, hey, this is like, I don't know what the land's worth, so I'm going to throw out whatever number. And the slippery slope fallacy is not a fallacy in this case, because you're just going to keep going and going and going. And you could have negotiations that take, you know, months all over a few hundred bucks. Or it's just, I, I mean, it, to me, it's a waste of time of, okay, this person's just kicking tires and I mean, I, I, I get people that reach out to me that you can tell have way too much time on their hands where they'll shoot me an email that's four pages long, you know, telling me, you know, I'm the scum of the earth trying to scam people or I'm a scammer or wh wh whatever it might be that 
you know, they, they're having a bad day. And those are the people you just don't want to work with where once again, to hit on it, you don't need every deal that's going to come into your inbox. There's so much land out there. So many single family homes or apartment complexes or in industrial buildings or whatever your asset class is within real estate that you don't need every deal. Don't waste your time on people that are uh, attempting to waste your time because that might actually be what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I lied. I actually have one more thing I wanted to say uh, to this whole conversation, right? We're talking about how to identify your customer, market accordingly, and negotiate accordingly. And as you do this in the long term, you will get better at hearing little little buzzwords that tell you, oh, this is our seller. And there was one the other day um, I was listening. I listened to my acquisition guys' calls just to coach them, to, to train them. And I heard a seller say the word get rid or the two words, get rid, get rid. I want to get rid of it. Whenever we hear that, that is one of those buzzwords where it's like light bulb, you know, bell goes off. This is our seller. They are done with this. We can get a deal here. Are there any other terms or anything you have consistently heard that does the same for you and tells you right away, hey, this is our seller? I think whenever I hear the word need, yeah, whenever they need something, they've lost in the negotiation in my mind. And I, I say lost because you guys can tell we, we, we're, we're businessmen, you know, we're, we're going to do what we can to get, uh, you know, a, a fair offer price accepted, but we're, we're going to use our negotiation tactics to the nines to get, um, the most ROI that we can. And as soon as I hear that word, yeah, I really need to sell it as <laughs> versus I'd like to sell it, or maybe I'll sell it, but yeah, I need to sell this land. I'm tired of it. I'm sick of it. Or any, any of those types of words that are, um, you know, of, of necessity uh, or of true pain associated with it as versus the people that are like, yeah, you know, if the numbers work, you know, I'll get rid of it, which those can work too. You know, and the numbers, once again, it goes back to exactly what we were saying. Don't make an assumption of what you think the numbers are that work for someone else, because your numbers and their numbers could be perfectly aligned, or you could have situations like Dan and I have both said, where we've gotten substantial discounts because our assumptions were wrong. So uh, yep. yeah, it's it's the necessity component um, that you can tell, okay, this person's going to be a motivated seller versus an unmotivated seller. Um, and once again, it's it's targeting your approach and, you know, based on the avatar that, you know, I, I think Dan and I can agree, we, we both have both sophisticated and unsophisticated sellers all the time in our businesses. But regardless of the avatar that you targeted in the marketing that you're doing, you can adjust your approach, adjust your language, uh, you know, uh, the jargon associated with everything that you're saying to effectively communicate with them. And I mean, you doing it in whatever way where, I mean, I, I'm from Texas and I, I can turn on the Southern, you know, if I need to, <laughs> you know, or if I'm talking to someone from New York, I'll start talking a lot differently. And, you know, my, to be honest, I don't, I don't really talk to sellers anymore. That's why I have an acquisition manager. That's what Dan and I do. And that's what Dan and I teach and preach is, uh, you know, we help people build their businesses too brand new heights that they couldn't imagine by, you know, allowing more scale, uh, for you to focus on what you're good at, um, and hire out and delegate everything that, that you're not, but to bring it full circle, you got to individualize your approach based on the people you're targeting and you can't target everyone. Although everyone might come depending on the marketing material that you're saying, but yeah, listen to those keywords and those buzzwords that allows you to determine the type of person that you're working with to determine the strategy that you're going to use to determine the dollar amount that you're comfortable saying. Yep. 
Uh, one more there is just aversion to working with the realtor. When my guys do the takeaway, they mention the realtor and that clearly like, no, 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 no. That tells you right there. That's an easy one. Great. Uh, Mason, any other points you want to make? I don't think so, Dan. I think I think this was great. Uh, I think um, you know the viewer can walk away with some very tangible, not just marketing strategies, but negotiation techniques of, you know, focus on what you're going to focus on. You know, create a laser focus there, and then individualize the approach once the actual lead comes in. So, awesome. Thanks, Mason. All right. Till next time, guys. And that's it for today's episode of The Big Picture Blueprint. If you found it helpful, please share it with your friends or anyone you think that it could benefit. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating, and we'll see you in the next episode.